Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of The Remnant. This week's epi- this week this week's edition episode, whatever, is brought to you by Donors Trust. For those of you who don't know, Donors Trust is your charitable giving partner, offering donor advised funds, philanthropic advice, and legacy protection. Learn more about how Donors Trust can help you advance liberty later in the show. And by ZipRecruiter, we'll hear more about both of those in a little bit, but I want to get straight. To our guest, who is here for the fourth time, Jack, is that correct? Fifth, fifth time. One of them was really memorable, number three. Yeah, that was big, that was big. Uh, and we're not even talking about the, the episode that won't be talked about, episode 11. We have Senator Ben Sass. Welcome back. Good to be here. So, uh, I was in your, um, I was in your, uh, your, your, at your home tree, your home base. Um, What's in home the, tree? Home tree is from Avatar. It's, a uh, we don't need to get into all of Sorry, that. Sorry, yeah. I just upset Jack Badley's. Badly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I was in Nebraska recently, and so if you felt a disturbance, that was me just, you know, just just defiling, you know, holy ground for you. Um, you look more virtuous for having been there. It might have rubbed off a little bit. It might have. Um, did you leave I eighty, or did you just drive through? We were hauling uh, butt to uh, get home, so we just drove pretty much straight through. I got a lot of grief from people for not celebrating the incredibly subtle beauty of Nebraska as seen from I-80. Um, it is a beautiful state. I-80 is the worst place to see it from, though. Yeah. So what what is highest altitude part of your state to the lowest altitude part of your state? I mean, what, what is the differential? Like eight feet, six feet? No. <laughs> uh, on the Colorado border, it's probably, you know, pushing 3,500 okay. feet. And then on the Missouri River, on the Iowa side, it's 1,000 feet. So okay. I, I live an hour from Omaha, so we're 1,200 feet in my town. In Fremont. Yeah. It yeah. declines as you move east, obviously, coming out of the Rockies. All right. Two things come to mind about Fremont. One, uh, I saw your tweet about, can someone please, if you know whose cat this is, was this, and we'll have it on the show notes, uh, the senator tweeted a picture of a cat desperately trying to get in through a back door or a window or whatever, and the senator asked if uh, someone could claim it, and then you follow up tweet saying it turned out that it was actually was your cat? What what what, what is, is happening? This is uncomfortable uh, uh-huh. because I feel like worlds are colliding right now. Twitter is supposed to be a space that I never have to defend in the real world. <laughs> uh, I've learned over time that there are people who think out, having outdoor cats is kind of wicked. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm sure those people are going to be angry at me for a long time. We have three dogs. Uh-huh. They're truly a part of our family. Uh-huh. They live in the house. They're ours. They come back and forth. My family comes out here 90 to 120 days a year uh-huh. uh, after January 1 every year. And we bring our dogs. There are cats that live around our property. Uh, I don't regard them as ours. Uh-huh. Uh, my wife and kids have a slightly different view, and the number of cats fluctuates okay. between okay. two and ten. I understand. Very Schrodinger indeed, yes. Um, Some of those cats. Do the dead ones cease being your cats or not? Well, that's, that's very of, Schrodinger. None of, them, <laughs> none of them were my cats in my uh-huh. view, but we may pay for food and vet bills and things like that. But they live around the property and they deliver dead animals to the front stoop like every other day, yeah. which I think is pretty cool. See, this is ironic because actually I, we have two cats in the Goldberg household and I always refer to them as the good cat and my wife's cat. <laughs> and people think that means I'm saying the other one's a bad cat. It's not. It's just that cat wants nothing to do with me, only wants to be with my wife. And um, I recognize that fact. Um, the second thing, Fremont. Before before we leave yeah. cats, uh-huh. uh, because I've never really been a cat person, but now that we have these cats around our property, I write every morning from four to seven. Yeah, and when the weather's right, I do it on my back deck mm-hmm. when I'm home in Nebraska. And one of these cats comes and wants attention in the morning, 
and he tries to get between me and the laptop. And so I find that from 4.30 to 4.45 to 5, I have to hunch down closer and closer over the laptop to keep the cat out of the way so he's yeah. not accidentally you know, adding keystrokes. He now gets on my shoulders and on my neck and needs my shoulders and neck as a back massage nice. in the morning. We're becoming friends. Yeah, it's yeah. no longer my wife's cat. The technical word for that is pleshing. And it's what kittens learn when they're trying to get milk from their mothers, and it's a sign of affection. So they actually – Are you saying that my cat thinks there are nipples on my back? Or knows something you don't know. <laughs> um, either way. Um, no, it's funny. So since we're going to stay on cats for a second here, years ago – so cat, outdoor cats are actually – they kill an insane number of birds every year. Tell me about it. My 14-year-old daughter balls about it daily. Yeah, and it's it's – like the Audubon Society is really worried about it. They don't want outdoor cats. They're anti-outdoor cats. Oh, it's a big I deal. I didn't know this. Like in, I think Minnesota alone, they kill 500 million birds a year. I mean, it's like some crazy number, right? And um, I wrote a column about it uh, once saying, first, paraphrasing Shakespeare, first kill all the cats. And I wasn't totally serious, but I was a little too glib for members of our cat-loving community. And um, it became a data point in um, – for me about how uh, the people that columnists can be most intimidated by are their own readers. And um, and so henceforth, I will always say that cat lo- my cat-loving readers are great and prosperous and wise people. But the backlash from that was I could have author- – I could have endorsed um, dictatorship in this country. And I'm not sure I would have gotten as much angry stuff from people – on both sides of the mm. issue about killing cats. First of all, because I, I was sort of tongue-in-cheek about killing all the cats, that the people who really do want to kill all the cats were furious at me for not taking it more seriously. Right. And the people who love cats weren't the other way. So anyway. Um, Second Nebraska item. Fremont. Did you grow up in Fremont? I was born an hour and a half north of there, but I was there from age two, yes. Okay. So there's no... There's no, you know, there is a tendency among some politicians, I'm not saying you, but among some politicians, I know you bristle at me calling you a politician, but it's, you're just going to have to own and own it and be self-aware. This um, is the hate finger we call it. Go ahead. Uh, um, uh, is there any irony to the fact that the town you live in is named after John C. Fremont, the, uh, first Republican, the first Republican founder of a new party? Uh, <laughs> that, uh, broke with the, um, the old order to start on a new idea that became, you know, uh, you, he didn't achieve greatness, but he opened the way for greatness. For yeah, the forethought that I had in 1974 as a two-year-old when I had my dad, the football and wrestling coach, get recruited away from the, the Plainview High uh-huh. School to come to the Fremont Tigers, it yeah. thought about all this. Okay. You, you got me. You found me out. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, look, I mean, sometimes, sometimes history just, Im- you know, has flourished to it and embellishes things a bit. John C. Fremont, uh, the sort of mythical founder of our town, he'd led expeditions through Nebraska to the West five times starting oh, so in the 1840s. Oh, so he actually founded the town? No, no. The town was founded in the late 1850s, and he'd been through there multiple oh, times. Okay. Uh, and so they named it after him. So the 1856 presidential election, Buchanan, Fremont, yes? I think that's right. Um our town was the Republicans, evidently, in uh-huh. the 1850s, so they named themselves Fremont. There's a town about uh, 35, 40 miles west, also along the Platte River. They were the Democrats. They named themselves Buchanan. He won, got elected. They were dissatisfied with him. They changed the name of their town to Schuyler. Uh, <laughs> Fremont always stayed where they were. Nice. In in The Simpsons, 
one of the key issues that separates Springfield from Shelbyville when they were originally founded was that the Shelbyvillians wanted to be able to marry their cousins. Um, so maybe that's true of Buchanan slash Tyler as well, but I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a politician, but I'm definitely not going anywhere near cousin marriage in small town Nebraska. Um, uh, Mississippi, on the other hand, no. Uh, <laughs> Let's right. talk about that. Yeah, no. So uh, moving on to rank punditry, it was weird. Last was it last week? It feels like last week. I do so much day drinking these days. Um, last week you were quoted as saying, or you said that you think about leaving the Republican Party every morning, or words to that effect, and everyone sort of set their heads on fire and thought this was this, did this huge tea leaf reading thing about it. And the thing is, I've heard you say similar things for like three years now. Do you want to clarify? Or do you want to like explain why you think the reaction to this was so different this time? Yeah, I really don't know why the reaction was so different because you're right. I think I've said this every you know 30 to 60 days for three years straight, um, which is I'm second or third most conservative voter in the Senate. But I don't think these parties have a long-term vision. And right. I think that demographically, the Republican Party has giant problems uh, when sort of um, faith and family, hard work and Hispanics think there's no place in our party. There's something wrong there. Like right. there's, just, there's just a bunch wrong demographically and politically with our party and there's there's stuff that's wrong policy and and vision based uh with both of these parties as well and so i didn't say anything new um somebody decided to make it news and everybody else in journalism decided to follow for 72 hours this weekend so i'm not exactly sure what drove it do you um and for the record i have absolutely no problem i mean i'm you think about politics too much. Many of you are senators, so maybe you don't have to think about politics too much. But you think about politics too much if you think this way every day. But I have absolutely no problem with the idea of thinking about leaving the Republican Party. The interesting question is to where? Yeah. Right? Um, and, and I want to be clear. I mean, I'm, I'm committed to trying to reform the party of Lincoln and Reagan. This is a party right. that has a, a great heritage and a great history, but it needs to re-embrace a bunch of its history and explain what it's about for the future. Because right now, these parties really do seem addicted to a 24-hour news cycle. And you know, pundits, uh, not picking up on your uh, mm. facetious rank punditry, but cable broadcast news, they need screaming chirons every three right. hours to try to sell more soap. I get the business model. What's weird is politicians who are willing to also think that that's their whole job. And I was joking when I said every morning, but I live in Nebraska. And so I fly here every Sunday night to Monday right. morning. And when I'm getting ready to leave two of my three kids and my wife for the week every week, you sort of want to say, am I making enough difference in the world? Right. And I'm headed to an institution that is really pretty content a lot of the time to just do anti and anti anti. Mm-hmm. So Neither Republicans nor Democrats could tell the American people right now what their 10-year plan is for America. And I don't mean 10-year plan in, a, in an East German sense, yeah. but a what's the small number of big things the federal government should be prioritizing? The two parties can't do that. They can just scream, nah, 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 the other people are worse than we are. And that's, that's a strange uh, thing to say, ah, let's have this be a part of my core identity. So uh, just to say it, you know, the 10-year plan thing, I understand what you're saying, but on the other hand... As a Nebraskan, you were probably a little tempted by the idea of, like, major quotas for more tractors, right? I mean, it just sounds <laughs> cool. Anyway, um, no, this brings up the justifiably viral uh, brouhaha over your opening st- statement at the um, at the Kavanaugh hearings, right, which is touched on a lot of stuff that you and I have talked about on this podcast and, and elsewhere. I talk about a lot in the book about how the sort of the legislative branches become a parliament of pundits and all they want to do is – get their spots on Morning Joe or Fox and Friends and not actually do things, right? And 
Um, I know you want to talk about some of the things you actually want to do in a second. We can do that. But I want to stay on this party thing for just a second, right? So when you say every all these senators are basically content to do the anti-anti-anti thing, it seems to me it's pretty much settled now among sober-minded observers of politics that the main reason for most Democrats to be Democrats is to not be Republicans, right? It's because they don't like Republicans, yeah. right? And vice versa. Republicans, the thing that unites Republicans more than any other issue yep. is not being Democrats, right? Yep. So it seems to me if, you know, people keep talking about a third party for all the obvious reasons, that's a that's a really tough thing to do. Richard Hofstetter had the famous line about third parties. They're like, they're, they have their influence, they're like bees. They have their influence by stinging and then they die, right? Um, and they tend to sting the people they love most. Right, <laughs> um, right. And uh, that's why we had Woodrow Wilson. But at the same time, it seems to me, whether it's a 10-year plan or not, if one party dies, the other party loses loses its reason to live. And you could see how if the Republican coalition just doesn't work in the next five years and just the party just becomes a rump party or the Democrat, because the Democrats got real huge structural problems that – yeah, the Trump stuff is blinding people to. That's so exactly I think right. it's it's sort of like the bankruptcy race between Illinois and California. One of them's going over a cliff. <laughs> I don't know which one, but probably Illinois. But if one part, you could, I could see how in ten years from now we still probably have parties called Republican and Democrat, but their coalitions could be wildly different. Right, right. Um, that doesn't scare me. Right, and it probably doesn't scare you because you think that something's got to give. But it scares a lot of people. What do you think those coalitions might look like going forward? Well, I hope that there are um, coalitions that at least have some core agenda vision for what big thing you want to do or before, as opposed to just trying to be competitive grievance identity politics parties. Uh, because I, I, I really want both parties to be healthy or the three or the five or whatever we, I, I saw Hamilton, uh, last night. So I'm thinking a lot about what Washington and oh, that's why you're 1796 the would say about this. Uh, but, Whatever number of parties we end up having, I think America's healthier if there are a whole bunch of them competing on big visions for right. the limited set of stuff government should do, but the clarity of vision about the important things that are worth taxpayers' time and troops' uh, potential blood and, frankly, civil servants' time as well. And so I don't want it to be backlash. I don't want it to be grievance. I don't want it to just be complaint. But to your point, I saw some pollings. It was private polling, but it was a pretty big data set about a year ago. And when you give the American people forced choice, do you think of yourself more as a Republican or more as a Democrat? There was no none of the above option. Mm -hmm. The plurality winner, 46% of the people in this poll interrupted to say, I don't like this question, none of the above. Mm -hmm. You can't make me choose between those two crappy parties. It was 29% D, 25% R. The Republican Party's self-identification has atrophied even more in the last 12 to 18 months. But of the 29% that were Dem, 25% that were Republican, when you drilled the next level down, why are you Democrat and Republican? Both of them were right around 70% in the verbatims, starting with what they hated more about the other party. Yeah. I think it's it's plausible to say America's 11% Democrat and 8% Republican. Mm-hmm. And then in election, you're given this forced binary of, uh, crap, of all these horrible people. I don't trust any of them. They're corrupt. They lie all the time. They're going to D.C. to get rich. Uh, I'll, I'll pick against somebody. That's the only reason I turn out. That's a pretty crappy way to think about a world where we're going to have job disruption for 45 and 50 and 55-year-olds forevermore. We're going to have cyber war where we're having a collapsing understanding of the First Amendment, uh, where we're having massive erosion of community and, and civil neighborly connectedness in local place. Like we have 
big, big challenges. We're not talking about any of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, one thing we do have to talk about is our sponsors. And our first one this week is uh, Donors Trust. Is charitable giving important to you? Do you care about the bedrock American principles of limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise? If so, then Donors Trust can help you simplify your giving and take it to the next level. Consider if you've experienced any of these situations. Perhaps you've been fortunate enough to receive an unexpected inheritance or sell a company, something where you both want to reduce your tax burden and support some charities. Or perhaps you found yourself in late December opening your checkbook to write year-end contributions to the same sets of groups as always, but wish it were simpler and that you had more time to think strategically. Or maybe you're working on your estate plan and wondering if your children will follow through with your bequest gifts to conservative nonprofit groups. If any of these situations sound familiar, take a closer look at Donors Trust. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds, philanthropic advice, and legacy protection. The favorable tax benefits, additional privacy, and ease of use make donor-advised funds the fastest-growing charitable tool in the country. And opening a fund with Donors Trust means you can be confident your charitable dollars won't go to support causes you don't like. Donors Trust is the community foundation for liberty, so they share your commitment to limited government and free enterprise. With Donors Trust, you'll be able to easily support the nonprofit groups you care about most, from think tanks to your church or synagogue, or to the countless charities using private dollars to solve public problems. A fund is easy to start and more accessible than many people realize. Find out how a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust can benefit you by visiting donorstrust.org slash dingo to receive your free six reasons to use a donor-advised fund guide. Remnant listeners will also receive a special bonus, two additional ebooks to help you identify principled, driven charities that deserve your support. So again, visit DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo right now to get your free guide on using a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust. Take your charitable giving to the next level by visiting DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. Uh, oh, well, one thing I want to get back to is that uh, on the opening statement thing, which I did say in print was the best opening statement I heard from a senator in modern memory, admittedly, low bar, you know, and lots of day drinking for you. Yeah, you know, lots of day drinking. I mean, it's it's best Oktoberfest in Orlando kind of standard, or <laughs> you know, uh, Taco Bell is just rated the best Mexican restaurant in America. Well, see, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, I, this is why we got Trump, by the way. <laughs> so I haven't looked closely at the reporting on that, and I, I would like to think that maybe the reporter screwed up reading the thing, but. Um, or maybe they only give you 10 choices and they were all high volume, high revenue fast food places. Right. I mean, so it may be just really crappy polling. Like if you have to choose, is Pizza Hut or Taco Bell the best Mexican right. place? It's yeah. a coin toss to yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but it do- I-, I tweeted about it that this does show the power of name ID in polling, right? It's like if you know the name of some famous politician or person – and then they give you the name of somebody you never heard of. You say, I prefer that guy because you know, just know who he is, right? I mean, but the idea that millions of Americans actually believe that Taco Bell is the best Mexican restaurant is terrifying. And I want to say I like the triple XL burrito on the road when I decide I need five thousand calories for a buck ninety five. Like I appreciate yeah. that, but just the idea that it's Mexican food. I mean, I don't know if they're your sponsor, and I don't want to get in trouble with them either. But that green stuff is not guacamole. No, no. Although I got to say, Chipotle, which brags about its the quality of its ingredients, and I like Chipotle, their queso tastes like 
yellow death. But um, uh, as opposed to green death. Yeah, what's that? Well, the, the yellow comes pronounced, you know, and the taste. I mean, then again, I'm one of these sort of like guys. I taste color, so but that's a different issue. <laughs> uh, what is the smell of the number seven, Jonah? <laughs> it's 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 effulgent in its acidity. Um, but uh, uh, where was I going to go with this? Oh yeah, so. Uh, on your opening statement thing in the Senate, which was really great, like the the best gas station sushi in in Mississippi, um, uh, I married that family, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, my colleague Ramesh Panuru uh, had some criticism for you, where he basically because you, near and dear to my heart, uh, uh, took a you know took a switch to the administrative state and to Congress for. You know, stealing for for outsourcing politics and policy making from Congress and the legislature to permanent bureaucracies in the courts. And Ramesh pointed out, I thought, and made a very good point that the courts were jerks too, and that the oh, courts yeah. invented all sorts of rights and powers under the Commerce Clause and elsewhere that the founders didn't intend either. And so, I mean, I don't think Ramesh considered it a shellacking of your position, but a, a, pointing out an omission. Of your position. Yeah, so I think Ramesh's piece was good. Uh, and I would just say yes and. I, I wasn't making an exhaustive, exclusive argument. He's surely right that social politics from the court are a huge part of where we got, how we got to where we are. In addition, one of the core things I was trying to talk about where you had protesters screaming uh, through that whole hearing and lots of that was about social policy, um, but a bunch of it was also about the administrative state. And, you know, there were people basically saying that Kavanaugh wants you to have dirty water and dirty air. And he, he I think, did a very nice job in his uh, opening statement saying, I'm not pro-environment or pro-coal. I'm a judge. I'm supposed to be pro-law. Right. Congress is supposed to net out the differences. Of course, in an Orwellian sense, it always sounds great to be pro-environment, and then that means that uh, the other people are anti-environment. No, they're not. The other people are saying, hey, we also need energy. So how do we net out trade-offs where there are competing values in different constituencies and not a consensus on every single issue? Politics is ultimately about power. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're going to solve those problems, he was saying the legislature has to solve them. So I, w- I was speaking to that issue, but I think Ramesh's piece is good, and I recommend it to folks. Yeah, this this just uh, wax nerdy on philosophy for two seconds. I wouldn't want to put it into an official definition of left versus right because the definition of right – I don't know what it means right yeah, now. Is, 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 it's, it's, it's starting to smell like almonds um, in the sense that there's a lot of uh, – uh, uh, the sepsis is set in on a lot of parts of the right these days. But um, – Yeah, if it, means, if it means European right, holy crap. Yeah. It's not a continuum I'm interested in. That's right. But the – one of the things I've always sort of distinguished between the sort of classical liberals and um, let's put it uh, sort of collectivists, right, is whether or not you can understand that every important choice involves trade-offs, right, in that right. X will always come at the expense of Y. And sometimes Y is really trivial and doesn't matter. And sometimes Y is really important. And, um, and it sort of goes to Thomas Sowell's constrained versus unconstrained vision thing that – that every economic decision is a decision between competing goods. And as I always tell my daughter, every hard decision in life is between either two really bad choices or two really good choices. Because right. if it's between a good choice and a bad choice, it's not a hard decision, right? right. Um, and for a lot of – I always think whenever I listen to the rhetoric of politicians who say, I refuse to believe that X will have to come at the expense of Y, 
I know I'm being sold a bill of goods. Because, of course, X is going to come at the expense of Y. And what those things are, as a matter of the question is, where can you find a, a healthy compromise, right? Yeah. I, I think it's interesting. A lot of the younger, smart leftists out there, the Vox crowd, yeah. you see them talking more and more about uh, how D.C. needs to learn from Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley can always solve every problem and D.C. just thinks things are intractable. No, in Silicon Valley, you can go bankrupt and you can't coerce somebody. Right. <clears throat> you can't you can't imprison them or find them. You actually have to win them to your cause. Silicon Valley is a great model for solving problems. It can be a technocratic engineering problem as long as you can go and find financiers for each new project and ultimately find customers or you wither and die. D.C. is not the same as Silicon Valley because it's the compulsive power of a monopoly state. And there, there are always going to be trade-offs when you're using the, the levers of government. And other people's money. <laughs> other people's money. Yeah. Another thing that in Silicon Valley you have to be able to do is find great employees. And that reminds me of ZipRecruiter. So first of all, I think that was a really, that was a really smart transition, if you ask me. But you know what's not smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. But you know what is smart? ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through the wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners, my dear listeners, can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-I-N-G-O. ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, back to this for a second. So since we brought up Silicon Valley this morning, we're recording this on Thursday morning. I haven't watched the video yet, but apparently a website has come out with, uh, has released a video of Google employees um, rending their cloth and gnashing their teeth over the victory of Donald Trump. And it's apparent, reveals what I think is, um, only slightly less shocking than the news that bears are using our national forests for toilets that Google is staffed by a lot of liberal people. Who knew? <laughs> and my friend John Hinderocker at, at Powerline had a post about it saying that after you watch this, you, all conservatives will want to do something. And the options he gave included turning Google into a public utility, Wow! using the Sherman Antitrust Act to break it up. And again, I haven't watched the video yet. Maybe I will want to, you know, carry my battle axe onto the, into battle too. But I somehow doubt that I'm going to want the government to take over Google because of this. There is this rising thing among certain elements yeah. of the right that says if these institutions or these businesses are mean to conservatives or don't give us what we want, the government needs to take them over or heavily regulate them, which I just find a shocking turnabout in the last 
three years of conservative thought. Where, where, where do you come down on that? Uh, I, I start where you do, which is what's the long-term position conservatives are going to hold on this issue the next time liberals are controlling right. the regulatory state. So I also haven't seen the video. I plan to watch it. I read a, I read one news story on it early this morning. So before I saw that, I had a conversation with the attorney general this week uh, just to voice my concern about this these sort of rattlings coming out of the administration that because Silicon Valley is on the left end of the spectrum politically, um, the government should try to get involved there. I don't know exactly what the starting point for why and what the end point is of what you're going to do about it. I, I do think that the the market power of a Facebook or of a Google or of a Twitter is completely different than the market power of a culturally conservative institution like Chick-fil-A, right? right. Like Chick-fil-A is not reshaping our communications environment and our ecosystem. Um, so we need to be aware about the consolidation of power and there may be all sorts of reasons why government has some role to play uh, in certain places. But I think we need to go real slowly before you just say uh, we should have a public utility in a space where a private company has a bunch of bias and has an internal culture. Now, one of the – I think Twitter is the, – the more I experience it and the more I take leave from it, the more I think it's a pretty toxic place. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the real useful pieces of it is I think it lifted the veil – of sort of fake claims of objectivity by lots of people. You can see the cultural presuppositions of yeah. people who don't do what Judge Kavanaugh, soon to be Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Gorsuch said they wanted to do in their job. They admitted their people with personal views and right. policy histories and relationships and everything else, but they put on a robe because they now have a public office where they're supposed to cloak those things. And Kavanaugh said, judges can't put yard signs uh, in their yard for campaigns. You can't have a bumper sticker on your car. You don't donate to political candidates. You don't go to political rallies. He said he thinks it's a, a virtuous thing. He didn't make it a sort of mandate, but he thinks it's good for judges to consider not voting because if you're going to vote, you're going to go and pull a primary ballot at some point. And when you do that, you signal to the world that you're still affiliated with one political party. Right. And so judges that come out of a a sort of modest sense of what the judicial role is, they try really hard to maintain a public appearance of objectivity and to cloak themselves. And it's a character discipline. And I think we see in a lot of these tech companies and especially media, social media companies, and in a lot of journalism, people don't have that ethic. And that concerns a lot of people. It's useful to put a spotlight on that. That's a different thing than saying, now let's use the government against those guys, uh, because that's going to be used against you in the future. Right. And I think it's ironic that we're talking about dismantling the administrative state and then saying, oh, but let's give them control of Google and Facebook. You know, I mean, it's a, what could go wrong? Um, but no, you, you bring up an interesting point about how um, – about this dichotomy between reporters and judges. Uh, back when I used to be a more full-time media critic, I used to make this point all the time when, when legal reporters, Nina Totenberg, whoever, cover – Judges, they invest vast amounts of importance to their partisan affiliation, right? This, this explains why they came to this decision over and over and over again, right? At least when it comes to conservatives. And then when you say something like, well, you know, there's liberal media bias. They say, what are you talking about? We can keep that kind of stuff in check. You know, it doesn't matter that 98% of respondents of newsrooms say they vote Democrat. You know, um, we know how to like separate that out and be objective. But no, judges, even though they swear an oath and actually change their clothing and do all of these things to be objective, that's all BS. But what we do right. is we're, we're serious. You know, we're, we're, we're like mentats from Dune. We can re- reject all passion. 
Uh, and I know you believe this, but I just want to chime in here. Um, I think it's so important for conservatives to constantly go back to the five freedoms of the First Amendment and defend free press right. as a, a matter of fundamental American principle and our fundamental law. And then distinguish from the fact that, of course, journalism has a culture and it's useful to reflect on the ways that that bias blinds people. Yesterday, Hillary Clinton tweets out about Brett Kavanaugh (laughs) uh, supposedly having said that all birth control pills are abortifacients or something just completely made up. This did not happen. And journalists had debunked it repeatedly across the spectrum. A bunch of different PolitiFact and other other groups had rated this for Pinocchios or an F grade or not true. And Hillary Clinton tweets and says this thing that A, is not true. B, had been debunked. C, almost surely she knew had been debunked when she did it. And yet she tweets this thing as a way to just lie to base voters. You can start out a myth and you can get to the right set of activist, energized, siloed base voters on the left. People do this on the right. Some of them live only a couple of blocks from here. And yet the word lie is something that journalists on their Twitter are completely willing to use when President Trump has lied. Right. Hillary Clinton blatantly lied yesterday. And I think the selection bias problem there is it's really difficult yeah. if you're in a newsroom that's 98 percent biased, even though I think lots of those people are trying to do a very fair job. Um, it's very difficult to use the word lie when it's against your own side. Yeah. And the point is, and it is their side. I mean, it just simply is. Um, um, the... My brain just froze up on me. I wanted to ask you about something, and now I forgot it. Um, it was about the reason video of what should have happened at the Kavanaugh hearings, wasn't it? <laughs> if you haven't, if you haven't, if your listeners haven't seen this no, yet, watch it five times in a row. It yeah. is it is one of the best pieces of Saturday Night Live or Onion TV I've ever seen. And I don't know what Reason Magazine has as a budget, but they can't have much money to do stuff like this. Yeah, it is outstanding. They made this seven or eight minute video, and they basically clipped up everything that every senator said over the course of the four days, and then they found the funniest little nuggets to bring into dialogue that were not the things that were oh, said really? to each other and then they added two characters. They had one actor who was Grassley as chairman and one actor who was Kavanaugh. Yeah. And they just they, they just interspliced these things back and forth and honestly it's belly laugh good once a, once a minute. Chris Coons is at one point sort of opening his questioning and looking at Kavanaugh and he goes we've known each other for years and the actor responds I have no idea who you are <laughs> and then it cuts right back to Coons and he goes we went to law school together. We clerked in the same courthouse and the Kavanaugh character goes Hambone? Is that you, Hambone? You got super bald! <laughs> and another, then it goes to dialogue. Yeah, another thing that happens is um, at, at one point the uh, the hearing committee chairman character, uh, he's he's already been drinking and he asks... Welcome to the club. Yeah, he, he asks um, Flake, uh, so how much more beer should we get? And then F- F- you hear Flake say, thousands and thousands of more cases. <laughs> And these are all real clips. Yeah, he actually said that for some reason. All, so many different movie titles were used in the course of people's commentary. Yeah. And so the the actor character says, we all know how we're going to vote. This is a complete charade. Uh, but we have the committee room for three more days. What are we going to do? I assume we're just going to get sound bites so we could use them in our fundraising mail. <laughs> Hello, Cory Booker. Uh, and instead, somebody says, I'd like to see a video. And then there's just a splicing of, you know, Seven little dwarves. Seven. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, you know, and that's the benefit you get when you have enough Adderall addicted intern monkeys in a libertarian magazine. You can really almost do anything. But um, uh, I love my friends at Reason. Uh, what um, I wanted to ask you though was, you know, so Hillary Clinton 
lied, right? You said she lied to pander to her own base, which is something I am completely open to about Hillary Clinton, right? But isn't it possible that one another motivation is that she is trying to basically troll right-wingers into attacking her? Yeah. Because in this negative polarization moment, to be attacked by the other side, even when it's completely fair, yep. <laughs> is a badge of honor, right? Because it doesn't matter what you do. It just matters that you make the right people angry, right? It's the own the libs nonsense. It, it, it is. It, we need more Americans to understand exactly this phenomenon. I've heard from pr- senior producers at a couple of cable news networks. I've heard from senior acquisitions editors at magazines in New York that in a world where there's no chance in the world and there's no chance in hell you're getting a 70% audience for anything anymore, right. what you want is a deep and sticky 1% audience. And one of the most effective ways to do that, oh <laughs> you are the remnant. Uh, one one of the most effective ways to do that is by getting attacked because you draw right. visibility to yourself. And so the Chick-fil-A nonsense, uh, the New Yorker magazine nonsense about Chick-fil-A right. saying that they were invading New York with some theonomic agenda to, to poison liberals or whatever crazy stuff they were saying. This is the New Yorker that has done some really important work, not just in its history, but this year. Yeah. And at the same time, they write these just nonsensical, scurrilous pieces. And I think that the motive is to get attacked from the other side so you can now wear the victim badge of honor and then other people who are in your base then rally to you as a second-order effect. Yeah. I mean, there was that reporting that said that President Trump deliberately misspells things in his tweets because – and I'm not sure that's true, but there was also added reporting that – when the aides, when Scavoni or whatever that guy's name is, uh, when they write the tweets, they deliberately misspell, like, counsel, right? I mean, I, I think President Trump's Twitter feed has misspelled the word counsel and special counsel more often than it's gotten it right, in part because they think it's a good little signal when all of the uptight pundits like me criticize spelling, right? Because that's what elites do is we make fun of people's, you know, spelling. And I think there might be some truth to some of that, that – they certainly don't care about making sure everything is is grammatically correct in the Twitter feed, in part because I think they have this condescending view that the masses, you know, the, what, real Americans don't spell well or something like that. <laughs> and, and only point out it leads pointed out. There's the old Steve Martin line. Some people have way with words and other people not have way. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So uh, it, you're you're you're. Press flack here is like literally sharpening an ice pick because we're not actually talking about the things that he wants you to talk about. You actually are proposing – you have some ethics – I, I did not want to say this phrase. You Come have, on now. You have a, a, a thing of – you have a collection of ethics proposals. We do. We do. <laughs> Thank you. My, my, uh, our, the package will be discussed in five different segments. Okay. Um, I think that the public doesn't trust this place and lots of it is warranted. Uh, some of it is uh, sort of uh, assumptions about this place, but we should tackle all those things, right? The, we shouldn't have uh, people who have massive foreign policy responsibilities for the United States government. These are public trust roles to be director of CIA or to be the secretary of defense or to be the secretary of state. You probably ought not have your immediate family uh, making money off speeches and uh, raising money 
for foundations that are used as proto-political campaigns uh, when you have a responsibility of public trust. We probably ought to have tax returns of presidents and vice presidents be disclosed as a matter of law and not just as a matter of convention that nobody ever thought to violate till this cycle and leads to massive public trust. We ought not have people come into D.C. planning to stay forever as lobbyists. Uh, you have you have a right of not just speech and assembly and religion and, and press, but you have the right of redress of grievances. You still have a, a free speech right. There's no reason you need to use a network that you develop while in Congress to make money as a paid lobbyist for mm-hmm. the rest of your life, never planning to go back to your Mount Vernon. We ought not have taxpayers uh, paying out settlements for HR and sexual harassment kinds of disputes. Uh, that ought to come from the individual member when they when they act badly or when they build a bad culture in their office. We ought not have insider trading where members of Congress, though we're not supposed to make money doing anything outside, you can sit on a corporate board and then have insider information and buy and sell individual stock. So there's just a whole bunch of stuff that I've been thinking about for the last year as I've seen not just experientially but the the survey data on how little people trust Washington. And if they don't think anybody here is trustworthy, then over time they're willing to do more and more crazy instrumental stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it'd be more useful for the people here to be trustworthy and have to demonstrate it. So big ec- ethics package I'm introducing today. Okay. So to run through it because <clears throat> for, for listeners like me who – we're just waiting for their opportunities to make really inappropriate innuendo about the word package. They might have missed what you were doing there, right? So the first thing you proposed was basically no more Hillary Clinton Foundation. No more Clinton Foundation. Correct. Right? If you, if, when you're in a cabinet post, you can't have an immediate family member out raising money from right. the same people, the governments and foreign governments and foreign entities that you're making decisions about them on behalf of the American people. You can't have your spouse or your kid going and uh, rattling the tin cup in front of them at the same moment. Right. And the second one was basically – no more things like Donald Trump not revealing his tax returns. Correct. Uh, the other ones dealt with things like Chris Collins and his being on a board. Blake yep. Farenthold, a yep. Washington's sexiest sexual harasser. Uh, uh, for those of you just listening to the podcast at home, Jonah's putting up pictures of these members of Congress <laughs> right now on the whiteboard, and it, it's weird what he's doing with the pointer. Uh, no, that's what Farenthold's doing. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> for those for those who don't know the joke about Farenthold, Google Farenthold, and it looks like you know a Teletubby in chemo. Um, but anyway, um, uh, thanks for having me. This has been good. <laughs> um, uh, it's more like the um, the guild navigators from Dune, actually. There's some of that. There's some of that. Uh, lots of Dune references today. So, what are the chances this passes? Uh, right now, the idea that you're going to have a ban on uh, former members of Congress going to K Street and getting rich and staying here forever, uh, very few people are going to support that on either side of the aisle because that's you're taking away the, the retirement same. package. <laughs> <laughs> These people, like, we need to change the incentives about who wants to run for office. I think you know the first day I was here, January third, fourth of uh, 2015, I introduced a constitutional amendment for term limits and promptly got called to the principal's office about it. To that, cocaine Mitch's office? That let's just keep. Keep moving. Uh, <laughs> by the way, the way his team has played those cocaine mitts oh, it's awesome. It's is just absolutely brilliant. It's fantastic. But um, he has the money and the yayo. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Go on. 
Um, I, I think, you know, what we're doing in this legislation is going to upset a lot of people on both sides of the aisle and the American people. It'll take time uh, to do some public education about these things. But frankly, I think the post McCain moment is a good opportunity to have a conversation like this. Right now, the big debate is going to be whether or not we rename the Russell Senate office building after John. And, you know, McCain would, I don't think he gives a rip about a marble building being named after him. The idea that there would be signs all over that say McCain SOB, Senate <laughs> office building. I think he would love that. That's actually good. Uh, yeah. I don't think he cares that the building is actually that. I just think he wants to be enshrined eternally as an SOB. Um, but I think what we should really do is talk about passing some legislation that wouldn't be able to get attention on it if it weren't for a post-McCain memorial moment. So I, I think there's an opportunity to have a conversation there, but I'm not naive about the fact this is going to take a while. But these are the kinds of longer-term things we ought to be doing because the corruption in Washington, and there's lots of it, isn't a Democratic problem. It isn't a Republican problem. It really is a swampy place. And every two years when there's a campaign, it, the party out of power runs on swamp training. And as soon as they become the party in power, they lose all interest in it. Nobody ever does any actual swamp training around here. Yeah. And there's a pretty deep swamp. So did you think about at all in putting a, a carrot in with a stick here and proposing increasing congressmen's and senators' salaries? I didn't. I mean, the, the average member of Congress does take a pay cut, I'm sure, to take these jobs, but it's still three times, you know, median household income in the U.S. So I don't think that the incentives in that space are any kind of problem. I think people should want to go back to where they're from, and mm -hmm. you should have people running who are desperate to get back home, but they do this as public service for a while, not as a way to get rich. Um, but people do. If you look at, you know, there's some finance profs around the country who've done longitudinal studies on this. People tend to have their uh, nest egg grow a lot more while they're in Congress yeah. than happens to the average American. Yeah. So I'm, I, I didn't think about that. There's some big debates in the House about people sleeping in their office and whether or not there should be a way to do housing when you're here. Because right. I, I do think it, we're better off with more members of Congress uh, living where they're from rather than moving here. And yet when they're here, it'd be useful for them to actually uh, interact uh, more to actually have some human relationships that bridge the screaming on cable. So I, I think there's some proposals in the House about housing allowance, but I don't have any carrots anywhere in our proposal. Yeah. I mean, I get the political problem of proposing raising salaries on really reviled and hated people, you know, um, but I mean, it, and it's not something I'm passionate about. But when I hear people make the serious case about, you know, trying to maintain two residences, what they would make in the private sector in the first place, you know, you, got, you know, your services would be more compensated in other places other than the United States Senate. There's, there's an argument there that that sort of knee-jerk populists don't want to really give any credit to, and if you could really compensate these people to the point where you then said that's it, you don't. There's no profiting off of this job whatsoever. We're paying you a really nice salary so that you don't take outside work. I mean, I wish I had that relationship with National Review that they pay me in chickens, which is why I have to do this podcast. Mm. But I think that there's an argument to be made there for it. But I agree with you. It's a it's politically it's a difficult thing to do. And. I can see it from your perspective as well. Um, and I, I guess one more thing on that. I, the the conspiracy theory world we're headed toward, I think, is going to ramp, right? We're going to have more and more siloed conversation. When you go right. from four uh, cable channel or four TV channels to 500 cable outlets for the average American house now, and the way barriers to entry are going to continue to fall, so internet-based media is going to create more and more of this, people are going to have more and more confirmation bias or feedback loops. 
I'm amazed how many Nebraskans think if you get elected to Congress, you have a lifetime pension that's your salary. It's just not true. There's yeah. no such thing. And I've been in office for three and a half years. And it's not every town hall, but a lot of the time when I have these public events, people think people ran, think uh, current members of Congress ran because you get your salary forever yeah, as yeah. a pension. There's no such thing. We just get a 401k contribution just like you'd get in the private sector. Yeah. And it's, it's a fine package, but it's definitely not. I, I've had much better retirement package in my last few jobs yeah. than this one, but it's fine. But I think when those myths are out there having any conversation about pay, it's not the problem we should be having. We should change the incentives of the type of people who run and have it be people who view it as public service. Again, yeah. just thinking about um, but you get having better pens, right? You get to keep like a lot of cool pens. Oh, I, sure. I, I steal five or 6,000 pens a month. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's like the old joke about the guy who for 20 years left the factory every night with a wheelbar- covered wheelbarrow. And they, but every time security checked it and looked underneath, they found nothing in it. And then at the end, they discovered that he was stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> <laughs> um, I worked with that guy. All right, so I, I know you got to go. Um, Judiciary committee this morning. Um, your Jack Butler here is uh, now chain smoking Lucky Strikes. So, but uh, very quickly, don't insult Jack this way. Will the uh, is is the Senate really in play? I don't know. The polling is all over the place, right? So we're a 51-49 body right now. And if you look at the map, we should be picking up somewhere between five and 10 seats. And you look at the polls and we're going to pick up somewhere between, you know, plus five and minus three. Yeah. Uh, it, it's an amazing moment, right? We've had reliable polling since the 1930s. Four out of five two-year congressional cycles, the polling is useful. And 20% of the time, it's just completely worthless because there's a wave of turnout that right. just swamps everything anybody can imagine. And um, to me, the most amazing number out there in these current polls is that the president's approval rating is plus eight with men mm-hmm. and is somewhere between negative 25 and negative 30 with women. I, yeah. I saw one yesterday that was negative 34, but I think most of them are in the sort of negative 26 range. Uh, that's that's an amazing thing yeah. to see that kind of spread uh, between the genders. And right now, in a number of the Senate polls that I've seen, women are presumed by the modelers to be much more likely to turn out right now. Mm-hmm. So the, the House math looks terrible. And then once you have a turnout play, you could imagine losing the Senate. Or we could still, when you go race by race, see a case that we should pick up Indiana and North Dakota mm-hmm. and Montana and West Virginia. But – I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're going to be somewhere between right where we are and plus one or two or minus one or two. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me if Beto O'Rourke will probably still lose, but he'll do so well that it's going to really hurt those swing House Republicans who um, are on the bubble, right? Yeah. That kind of thing. And that could really be bad. I was um, I was given a speech in Dallas a couple of days ago. And just to hear uh, political consultants in Texas, that, that's not who I was talking to, but there was a fundraiser going on down the hall. And some of the people there came over afterwards and, and crashed my event. And uh, As all the cool kids do. Yeah. Well, yeah. talk about Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> and by the way, uh, how does he get this name? Right? Like he's an Irish guy. You just, yeah, yeah. You just imagine a bunch of people sitting around in a – a bar and a pub in Southie and they go, Hey Robbie, you know what you're going to do? You're Beto now and you're going to go to Texas and you're going to run as a Hispanic guy. <laughs> I just tried to make sense of name change, but he, he's got a virtuous cycle of, um, cool factor going on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cool kids want to be with them and then the cooler kids want to be with those cool kids. So, yeah. but 
it, it is strange in Texas because you have a bunch of House members who have a district that's 650 to 725,000 people, and they've got a bunch of suburban women who are very, very yeah. opposed to the president. And the fear is, again, for political consultants, if you motivate those women to turn out, the House members lose. Right. And yet, if you don't do something to motivate a bunch of people to pay more attention to the, the Senate race, um, then that race looks harder. So I think there's a there's a very big difference inside Texas circles about people who want the president to come do lots of rallies and yeah, people yeah. Hope that, who hope that those rallies aren't near their districts. Yeah. I could, I personally, I could care less as someone who doesn't agonize about calling themselves a Republican. I just don't care very much, never have, if the Republicans lose the House because not much is going to get done anyway. And I actually think there's a case for oversight. But losing the Senate and taking away yeah. cocaine Mitch's ability to get judges through, that would bum me out. And uh, – your people, your listeners know this, but I mean, it is amazing. We, except for the moment when the circuit courts were created, we have confirmed more people and lots of really great people yeah. to the circuits than at any point in U.S. history. The last 20 months have been the most productive uh, moment in Senate Judiciary Committee history. Yeah. And I, you know, I differ with the president on lots and lots of stuff, uh, but his judicial nominations have been outstanding. And Don McGahn, the White House counsel who's now leaving, um, has just been laser focused on a process to get really good people nominated in a hurry and the president has stuck to his list obviously with Gorsuch mm -hmm. and now with Kavanaugh and uh, the circuit court um, confirmation process has been something to behold the last 20 months. Yeah, I mean, I, and then I'll let you go after this, but just one quick point I want you to respond to. As a political fight, right, it bothers, as a matter of sort of cultural political messaging, these victories, most of the stuff that Trump has done, quote unquote, that I really like. These are victories for sort of my crowd of Trump skeptics, right, Trump critics. The reason he adopted that list was not because of his lifelong passion about fidelity to the Constitution, right? The reason he adopted that list is because the Republican Party and conservative activists and donors said, look, there are some red lines you cannot cross, so your sister is out, and instead you got to jump through some hoops to prove – that you're going to do right by us on judges. And so when I hear Sean Hannity, my colleague at Fox News, talking about how this just proves Donald Trump's abiding love for the Constitution, that is what political scientists call horse crap. And the proof is, is that same thing with, you know, Donald Trump's commitment to pro-life politics is, is, is of recent vintage, right? And so one of the things that drives me crazy is that if you want it's like this anonymous New York Times piece, right? First of all, I thought that was an insane thing to do. The first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. The first rule of secret cabals manipulating the president is don't talk about it. How come Trump skeptical politicians and people can't take more credit for this stuff? Yeah, I mean, the the modern parties are coalitions. And those of us who believe in the rule of law and basic constitutionalism uh, represent a share of Republicans. I just don't know how big it is. And the coalition decided and the president bought off on the deal uh, to embrace a whole bunch of principles about constitutionalism and about good judges that he'd never held before. And so that is one of the victories of this moment. But going back to where we started, uh, your point about the two parties and whether or not there's a long term. I think people haven't paid nearly enough attention uh, to the fact that on the left, there are already rumblings about things like court packing, right? Yeah. Like we need a 
consensus in America about the really big issues. We can't just win by owning the libs or they have Hillary trolling the conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, there needs to be a sense of what America means that has a civic architecture that's bigger than just the policy fights about the legislation of this six-month or 24-month period. And uh, we've done great things on the court. We, that is the weird coalition that is the whole right now. Mm-hmm. Um and yet, it's not like that's a stable thing. When the court went from six to nine justices, uh, it's not that you. It's not as if you can't imagine a world when Democrats have the presidency, the House, and the Senate. They're not going to decide to take the Supreme Court from nine to fifteen or seventeen. Yeah. You already see those rumblings on the left, and particularly so when we, the government controls Google. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a great place to end. Hey, good, congratulations on all your success betting betting on cross country. Oh, that's we didn't get nice to talk about control. that. Maybe next time. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. I know you got to run. Taco Bell was the only restaurant to survive the franchise wars. So? So? Now all restaurants are Taco Bell. No way. All right. So uh, we're going to break the fourth wall here a little bit and uh, let you know that the reason why the end of conversation thing got so wrapped up so quickly was that in the middle of my question, my long meandering uh, question, uh, Ben Sass got a text and made one of those holy crap faces and said, made, made the wrap-up gesture because he had to get out of here because I guess they were going to sacrifice another couple dozen ox to ball or something at the Judiciary Committee. So so we're glad he came in here, but he just raced out of here. Jack, what would you think of that? This was his fifth, you said? Uh, either fifth or sixth, I think. Depending on how you count episode 11? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have two – there are two things I want to say about your conversation, which – I, I myself broke a rule, which I think I've only done only on the episode with John Podhoritz and Vic Mattis and um, the film critic dude, Gene Shalit. Uh-huh. Uh, did I actually interrupt? Intrude. Yeah, intrude the con- on the conversation. And notice I did not activate your pain collar when you did that. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, but, yeah, but that was about the, um, the Reason TV... Kavanaugh parody video, which was truly hilarious, but it's also... You showed shocking amounts of human emotion during that. Yeah, it's also kind of weird to imagine that, like, that Senator Sass, who was in it, has has seen it. Yeah. Um, but that's not what I wanted to talk about. What I want to talk about was uh, two things. First, he was, you, when you were talking about the highest point in Nebraska, it brought it re- reminded me that there's a highest point in Ohio as well. It's Campbell Hill. <laughs> It's a hill. Uh, <laughs> it's, you must be so proud. It's 1,300 feet above sea level, and I really want to go to it and because uh, I'm sure – but I have to prepare because I'm sure the air is very thin there. Yeah, no. And, but it'd be, it would be glorious to go to the top of it and see for yards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, it's, one of, it's on my bucket list. It's not the lowest, highest point, though. That's in either Florida or Louisiana, yeah, which I, I think those points are, like, above sea level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's yeah. what makes them the highest in their states. But also the thing about Taco Bell, uh-huh. um, this is – Yet another area in which the movie Demolition Man is being proven as the most accurate dystopian film ever produced. Because remember in that movie, there is only Taco Bells in the whole – like Taco Bell won the franchise wars as they're called. Uh And so every restaurant became Taco Bell. So we're just – we're on the way. Was that Demolition Man? Yeah. Because he was also in a movie – Stallone was also in a movie where he was a bomb disposal guy. Right? Wasn't he? Uh, if so, I do not know of it. But it's definitely like Demolition Man with uh, Wesley Snipes, um, Sandra Bullock. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember it. I just, um, I just, I guess, and he also did Judge Dredd. 
Yeah. Where they basically used the same costumes and had a different script. No, 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 no very different movies. Um, uh, yeah, so I, you know, Senator Sass has told me, I mean, not, not to move from these weighty topics, but, uh, uh, Senator Sass has told me nothing. I have no pertinent inside information, but it does feel more and more to me like he's thinking about running. Uh, mm, I I had a dream that he would like literally not a metaphorical dream but a quite perhaps prophetic dream not that long ago. Huh. I, it's funny you bring up dreams. I had the weirdest dream the other night. I usually my eyes glaze over when people talk about how weird their dreams are because of course people's dreams are weird, right? But um, although there was a great movie, really underappreciated comedy, which I don't want to rewatch to find out I'm wrong about, uh, called First Family with Bob Newhart, where. Bob Newhart was so boring. All he did was dream of quietly eating soup. Uh, <laughs> but uh, a, since I'm obligated to reference SpongeBob now, there's a there's an, a SpongeBob episode in which SpongeBob enters the dream of his friend Patrick Starr, and all Patrick is doing is riding on a like grocery store mechanical horse thing very uh-huh. slowly, and then he runs out of quarters. Then he can't do it anymore. Um, I laughed. I cried at that anecdote. Um, uh, I had a on, on, I was convinced it was real that you had working for you as an intern, which means really working for me, but that's how it works, right? Yeah. Uh, the character Jin Yang uh, from Silicon Valley, who's like this really uh, asinine, assholic, acerbic um, Chinese uh, guy, um, and that Jin Yang was just constantly going around stealing all of my collar stays. Um, and I finally tackled him to the ground and, and made him admit it. Um, and it was, I mean, it, it was bizarre. It was like, I, when I woke up in the morning, I had to take about three minutes convincing myself that in fact, I don't have Jin Yang as an intern working at the American Enterprise Institute, but well, I'll, now I'll try to make that happen. Uh, no, no, it's, that's, that's fine. Um, yeah, I'm sorry we, I didn't get to talk more about, uh, cross country stuff and, he brought up at the very end, uh, uh, he saw, talk, this is sort of like the breaking of the fourth wall thing with, with you and imagining Ben Sass watching the Reason video. Uh-huh. I run into this kind of thing, not all the time, but it's one of the reasons why I'm uncomfortable with most, most politicians is when I find out they actually read me or follow me on Twitter. Like the last time I ran into Ted Cruz, he asked me how my couch was. <laughs> Just for those who don't know, in this newsletter thing I do, the Goldberg file, I, I talk about. I have conversations with my uh, allegedly sentient couch, and the couch um, hasn't been in a G file in a while. He hasn't. He hasn't. There's reasons for that, but we don't have to get into that now. And um, although part of it has to do with the discomfort of finding out that like, real human beings know I talk about my talk to my couch. Um, but where was I going with this? Oh, so last week my daughter had her first cross country track meet. It's just cross country meet. Cross country meet. Okay, yeah. yeah, no track, I guess, right? And uh, I'm. You're, it's so good that I'm here to correct you of disabuse you of these notions. Yeah, no, that's fine. And um, I, I tweeted. Uh, I, I won't say jokingly, but I tweeted um, that I was very confused about all of this because I don't know how it works. It was the first time I had ever been to, as 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 Jack can tell from my terminology, and um, and I joked on Twitter that. It's also confusing. I mean, I don't even know how to bet on this stuff. Is it like <laughs> horse racing? Is there like an exacta? And Sass, who's got two kids who do cross country, 
was talking to me about it and thought it was really funny and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's, it's weird that senators read my Twitter feed and he wanted to talk about it. And I forgot until the very end. Um, well, I'm happy that I, I could create a podcast of my own just about cross country. Uh, in fact, the funny thing about, uh, your horse racing joke is that for a long time, all four years that I was in high school, the Ohio, uh, state cross country meet was held at a racetrack, Sayoto oh, really? Downs. And so I always made jokes of that nature when I was there. It's not there anymore, much to my chagrin. I missed – that was a beautiful place to end your season. I am um, – as you know, I actually spent a great deal of time on the Hillsdale College cross-country track. Not track, course. Horse. Horse, horse is the word yeah. that you're looking for. Um, uh, because I, when I taught that class there, I brought Zoe, our dog, uh, at the time our only dog, and she was still puppy-ish, and um, the cross-country course yeah. is at Hillsdale is amazing for like exhausting a dog. It's got trails, it's got different terrain, um, animals. It's got a lot of animals. She chased and killed a few things there. Yeah, I've um, done that too. Um, well, you had to eat, you know, because you, yeah. were you weren't on the meal plan. That's right. <laughs> um, and I had an absolutely terrifying moment where Zoe found a skunk. Oh. And, um, I did not know until this episode, uh, not this episode of The Remnant, but this moment at, at Hillsdale, that skunks, once they spray, it takes like a week for them to recharge. Oh. So this skunk clearly had sprayed somebody else. And Zoe kept yelling at the skunk, and the skunk kept turning its butt and facing and aiming it in my dog's face. And I'm screaming incredibly loudly at the dog, you know, to get away. But the thing never shot Zoe. And I was terrified about having, like, the Charles Manson bungalow they put me in <laughs> um, at Hillsdale. All it needed was a a skunk musk-soaked dingo to really bring out the ambrosia of that place. And uh, um, But anyway, I liked it. I thought the cross-country thing was fun and kind of cool, and I kind of get it. My daughter did well. It was her first time ever running and she kind of came out in the middle of the pack and i think if it had been crazy hot she might not have finished a bunch of people didn't finish which i thought was interesting and um the dnfs is what they're called and what does that stand for did not finish yeah and are they shunned for the rest of their life uh, well not really uh i i'm kind of a snob about these things so i well depending on the race i mean there are all the circumstances change there are bad conditions sometimes and sometimes you just can't control what what is going on with your body so no i guess you don't show yeah. i mean it was it was super muddy and so her feet really hurt because her socks got wet and they were rubbing and all that so i was very proud of her and how, how how well she did for never having done it before and having missed preseason training oh she yeah. signed up at the last minute so it was the first time she had run in a long time oh um, man but so first question is is cross country always the same distance uh how far was the race was it a 5k yes okay that's the typical uh, post-freshman high school distance, 5K. Okay. Uh, freshmen will often run a two-mile, so some the, and those will be run separately. Um, at, the, at the collegiate level, the typical normal season race length is is an 8K, which is j like literally just short of five miles. Uh -huh. Happens to be, fun fact, the same length as the Mackinac Bridge. Uh. Um, and then in the championship... Total coincidence, I assume. Yes. Yeah. In the in the championship races, so after the regular season, they move up to 10K, which is 6.2 miles. So for listeners who don't know, Jack is actually a very accomplished long-distance runner. 
And I, I, I will admit, I kept thinking, because first of all, you look younger than you are, and you could probably pass for a high school senior. And um, If I shaved. And I was thinking how there's this great episode of, of Seinfeld where Kramer keeps bragging about how he's the top of his class in, in karate. <laughs> of course, they're all like nine-year-old kids in his class. Yeah. He's kicking all their butts. Um, it did, it did make me wonder how much of a head start you could give the, the varsity kids and still beat them. Oh gosh, don't This is it's it's almost painful for you to ask me this question because I would there are a lot of things I would do for a chance to run at a cross country meet again. I have not run a cross country race since graduating college. I've done only road races. And especially a high school race would be like be like traveling back in time with all of the information that I have learned since then right. and using it. So um, I'll, I'll just say that in lieu of answering your question. Okay. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to trigger some sort of dazed and confused response from you about how much you fantasize of running in high school races. <laughs> uh, it was just, it's something I have very, very fond memories of. Um, okay. So we should wrap this up. I wanted to talk about, uh, what's his name? R.R. Reno. Uh, yeah. I have not read the piece yet. So I can't really talk about it, but from all the email I'm getting from people, it sounds it's about as asinine as it seems. Uh, Reno is the editor of First Things, and he has a review of my book, Suicide of the West, uh, still available in bookstores and at Amazon, and uh, where he, he tweeted out his opening sentence, which was like this ad hominem thing about how I represent the decadence of something or other. Contemporary punditry or something. Yeah, um, and I, I will uh, I will take a look at it. Today or tomorrow. I mean, that's true of your lifestyle, but that, that's nothing to say about your writing. Yes, no. I mean, I, 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 the idea that I I conceal the fact that I wallow in my own crapulence is, is not <laughs> is, is 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 ridiculous. Um, but you've read it, uh huh. What did you think of it? Um, I think he had. Well, I, I think it's sort of dishonest, and I think he had a different. He used you as a stand-in for a class of people he wanted to criticize the gotcha. globe. The globalists. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think your book does not – your book is not a globalist tract. It is much different. Um, in fact, you criticize those people yeah. uh, at various points and uh, it's almost like – it's almost like he didn't want to mention that. Yeah. No, I know. Again, this is, it's like that review from New York Magazine. There are lots of people who invent the book that I – wrote and then review that critically um but again i haven't looked at it i do think it's funny though um when because first things which i have followed a little bit over the last couple of years i used to read it religiously so to speak <laughs> um i don't really anymore um but um the world's oldest globalist institution catholic church <laughs> um and uh um, I do think it's kind of funny when people like, you know, like Bannon or this Reno guy denounce globalism while touting their Catholicism. There's, um, I know there are instances of things that could be called Catholic nationalism, but they're doctri- my understanding is they're a bit doctrinally problematic um, for a universal church. That's what Catholic means. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we can revisit this. Later, if I if I get to it, it's just I got you know I was on a plane all day yesterday without Wi-Fi, and um, um, 
when I landed, I get all this email from all these people saying I can't, you know, and all these tweets from people saying how ridiculous this review was, and I kept meaning to read it, but I didn't get a chance. Um, maybe you two can reach common ground on on papal ninjas. Maybe, maybe I'm, you know. Oh, speaking of reaching common ground, I'm going to Notre Dame in October. Is that when it is? Yeah, 11th and 12th. And I am going to be on a panel discussing Patrick Deneen's book. And I'm going to be doing a sort of debate conversation with our friend Charles Kessler about Donald Trump. Uh, Both of those things, given the cross-currents of uh, positions that we all have, could be pretty interesting. I have a bunch of travel coming up. I'm giving talks in a bunch of different places. Please check JonahGoldberg.com for dates and times. Be sure also to tweet about this podcast at, at Jonah Remnant on Twitter and uh, the artificial intelligent bot that runs that account may, in fact, retweet you. It's up over, what does it have now, over 5,000 followers? Yep. Yeah. And um, uh, anything else that we actually need to announce right now? Uh, review, subscribe. Oh, yeah. Uh, we hit 2,400 reviews on iTunes the other day, which is good. It's not nearly as good as 24,000. <laughs> um, so if you can do it, that would be great. Remember, it makes all the right people angry or sad when you do it. You know, so positive review it to own the pod. Yeah, negative polarization. That's what and, it's about. Uh, it's a healthy channel for negative polarization. And um, Okay. Uh, and <laughs> we'll figure out how uh, to get back to you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.